Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Oh, she said no to me, guys. <laughs> what a way to start out a podcast. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. The no was, uh, are you ready to start? And she said no. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. boy. Hi, Bliss. Hi, Hello, I'm... my friend. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. And good middle of the night to all Gosh, our... It's... It's been a long time since we've been in in the middle of the night, but yeah, it's been a very long time for me. And uh, you had no bursts, obviously. I'm waiting. Okay. I had somebody who went early and somebody who's going late, so it's you know that span. But um, any day now, and then I'll be off call for a couple of weeks again. Yeah, not too long ago, I think uh, um, Dr. Flores had I think three or three in like thirty hours or something like that. So it's. You know, and then you don't have any for two weeks or three weeks. That's just the yeah. birth worker's dilemma. That's how it goes. So, so what's looking, new with you? Well, one thing I'm not talking about yet, which we'll talk about in the sh- near future. I don't like to jinx <laughs> things, so we'll just leave it at that. Okay. Um, what's new? I, I've been uh, I've been on a couple of other podcasts lately, decidedly podcast. Uh, kind of, you know, I don't even remember all the names, but you can find them on if you go to my Instagram page. We we link them on the posts are also in the stories so you'll find them and then of course the trusting birth seminar just ended i thought it was really well done you know i've been involved with those before but this one just seemed i don't know the speakers the the topics the whole trusting birth thing was just a great theme so i hope people I agree. go to that and the, and the last story you you uh listened to with meredith and alicia no i talked to uh alicia's sister about it and i i have not had a chance to do it yet i'm going to do it well by the time this podcast comes out, I'll have listened to it two weeks ago. <laughs> but, it's so beautiful. But I'm going to listen to it in my car the next time I have time in my car. So yeah, yeah you'll you'll really appreciate it. It's a really beautiful story. Other than when I'm doing work at my computer, which is a lot lately, or um, talking to you and recording, I don't really sit in one place for very long. So it's hard for me to to watch things. So I'll probably uh, end up just listening to it, not yeah. not watching the faces, but that's okay. That's totally okay. How's your so, uh, mentor? How's your mentor program going? Um, my mentor program is amazing. I am really enjoying it. There'll be another one that starts in January. Um, but yeah, I'm really digging it. It's been great, and I got my electric bike. Oh, you so. got an electric bike! Yay! Yay. So I took my first ride on it this morning and um, it was lovely. Really, really great because I have a lot of hills where I live. Um, so it's very helpful to be able to like go anywhere you want to go. Um, Do you when, care to share what brand you bought? Um, I'll post it somewhere. We'll okay. put it in the notes, but I can't. I think it's called electric with an L, not electric, but electric. Um, but I got it from uh, I got it from a friend who had done a lot of research. Um, and so that was super helpful to, cause I, I can, I'm a Virgo, so I could spend forever like looking at all the options. So it was really good to just have someone else say like, here, do yeah. this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah, I agree. Um, a mine with mine's a folding bike, which they don't make a lot of those. Uh, mine folds too. Oh, so I was going to ask you because can, yeah. you can stick it in hope then. Yeah. Yeah. Folds in half, just like yours. How much does it weigh? Is it as heavy as mine? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they're all pretty heavy. They're pretty heavy, yeah. You have to shut that up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You need a little assist because they're so heavy. Um, yeah, but things are good. I'm excited for my uh, workshop, my um, Innate Journey workshop at the end of this month. We're also doing the panel here that you've done a couple of times, the maternal health panel. Um, yeah, I'm going to miss it. Yeah, you won't be here this year, but um, some of the some of some really fun people are going to be there. Floor from Badass Mother Birther. And uh, Dr. Shavira is going to be there and Alyssa from the birth center and some other people I don't know, but I'm very excited. And then some birth stories um, of women who have had successful HBACs. Yeah, that'll be great. Um, yeah. it's, al- it's always great. And it's always well attended. Uh, yeah, it's going to be the, really by the, commu- by the community, 
you know, not not by the medical professionals in Santa Barbara, but by the community, it's well attended. So, yeah, you right. know, I'm I'm hoping that uh, that you're a catalyst for some of the walls breaking down. I, I I just get a sense that there's going to be some changes up there, whether they want them to or not. That's what everybody keeps saying. <laughs> so I'm just I'm just riding the wave. Well, I am going to be leaving in three days uh, for my next two month sojourn in the beast and hoping that the beast is ready i went to see it last week it's still in parts laying around but they promised to have it ready by the end of this week i'm supposed to leave saturday i have to drive 1500 miles to Merriam, kansas wow. um, for a seminar starting on the 10th and the 11th of september and if people want to follow that they can go to the events page at birthinginstincts.com and they can find out where i'm going to be next uh, but I'll be gone for two months, um, all through September and October, not getting back till probably the first couple of days in November. So um, I've been getting some inquiries for births starting in November again, whether I'm going to be around or not. It's difficult because, you know, I'm still enjoying my sabbatical and I would like to go home for Thanksgiving this year to my sisters. I haven't been there, obviously, in two years. I don't know a lot of people have missed Thanksgiving. So this is a big one. but. We'll see. We'll see. Are you uh, invited? Yes. Oh, okay. Good. Yes. I've confirmed. I got it in writing. <laughs> <laughs> I had I had my sister notarize it. So I know I know that it's you're funny. <laughs> you're funny. <laughs> yeah. 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 Although you know there could be a new outbreak of something before November. So we never know. Oh, you for sure. Don't know. No, let's not go there. Let's 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 be optimistic. Okay. People are beginning to open up. I mean, some people will never undo their cognitive dissonance, but yeah, I, yeah but we don't really have to talk about it. I've got a few things coming up about sort of in that genre. So we'll get to that in a second. I just was uh, texting with Marin this morning. Yeah. Excuse me, Marin this morning. God, mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe they can edit that out too. No, don't edit that out. She'll, <laughs> she'll kick me for saying that. For, uh, I was talking to Marin, our friend in Kentucky. Yes. And I sent her somebody from Lexington who who contacted me who has a VBAC twin question, uh, possibility. Mm -hmm. And she said she got the records from on this new twin referral and she thanked me for the referral. And the records had 1,200 pages from her first pregnancy. Wow. So she re she said to me that, that that they're reducing humans to codes. And I said to her, I created a new rule, a new Birthing Instincts podcast rule, and it is... The size of the chart is inversely proportional to the quality of the care. So the smaller it is, the more intimate it is? Yes. Yes. The larger the chart, the less the quality of care. Mm -hmm. Like simply, and, and you know what? And that's generally true. Because individuals who provide quality of care aren't going to provide 70 to 1,200 pages of, of notes when they when they have to transport somebody in. They have, you know, they have either their computerized thing or if it's written records, it's four or five, six pages at the most yeah. with some labs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I can't even imagine what they put on 1200 pages, but don't want a lot to of repeats. I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. So some just following up on one of our last podcasts, we talked a little bit about the poor breaches that get ragged on because of the game of uh, the house of dragon and the house of the dragon thing where they, they had a breach birth that went, went bad. Yeah. Uh, my my thought process afterwards, we hung after we hung up, I said, how come um no one's ragging on the fact that the C-section killed somebody? Back then? Doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. They they're focused on the breach and they don't focus on the, you know, the brutality of the of the of the surgery itself. Yeah. You know, and in light of our last week's podcast, two weeks ago now, um, there are complications to cesarean section and that maybe people could have focused on that a little bit and, and give the breech baby a break for God's sakes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so I have a couple letters and then I have some current events. Are you up okay. for that? Okay. I'm up for it. So this is interesting. This is from, I can mention her name. Her name's Carmen from Colorado Springs. And she writes, hello, Dr. Stu and Bliss. I just finished listening to the gaslighting podcast. Well, the most recent one with that title. <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing in a semi-response to that email you read about the mom who tested positive for COVID, who had twins that were separated. Crazy pants, she says. 
I imagine the question you posed was rhetorical about are they being held on, on the hospital as prisoners. I thought you may want to hear a story of one of my clients. I still chuckle at it. So she says, this is a Gravita 4 para 3 that hired me for her fourth baby. For whatever reason, we could not get her into labor, and we ended up in the hospital for an induction. She needed a whiff of Pitocin, and her baby came very quickly. Everything was fine with the baby. No issues with the mom at all either. The parents requested to go home as quickly as possible. This is where it gets interesting. Mm -hmm. The pediatrician does not want to let them go home because, comma, well, I assume doctors. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> okay. It escalates to having the OB, the pediatrician, and the head of the hospital come into the room to tell them that they can't leave. They politely request to leave, and they say they will check out AMA if necessary against medical advice. The head of the hospital and the two doctors leave the room. My clients are frustrated, and the nurses are very uncomfortable and trying to work around the tension in the room. Then the OB comes in and tries to talk them into staying just to make it easier. They decline. Of course, this is taking a lot of time, and it's getting a little more heated each time. All three people come back in the room to try again to talk them into staying for at least 24 hours. The dad, meanwhile, is recording on his cell phone as they are talking to him. They tell them that they will call CPS. Now, before I go out and read the next sentence, which is hilarious, why do you think they want them to stay for 24 hours? Uh, so they can bill for another day. Thank you. Yeah. God, you're so smart. <laughs> <laughs> Just been around. <laughs> I mean, we're presuming that, but I mean, what else could it be? Okay. Other than they have a protocol, but they're the they're the people that made the protocol. So they obviously, if they wanted to bend the rules, they could have. Right. All right. So they tell them they will call CPS. Ironically, the dad works for CPS. Oh, that is ironic. <laughs> and offers names and direct numbers for them to call. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that reminds me of the movie. Uh, it was a Woody Allen movie, and he, and someone with a doctor carrying a doesn't carry a, a beeper and has to be called all the time. Annie Hall, I think it's Annie Hall. Uh -huh. and, and he's standing in line at a movie theater listening to two pompous jerks talk about filmmaking, and they quote Marshall McLuhan, and they quote him all wrong. And I don't really have any much knowledge about Marshall McLuhan, but they're really pompous guys talking back and forth. So Woody Allen says something, well, I happen to have Marshall McLuhan right here. And, he thinks, and, and then Marshall McLuhan tells them they're both idiots. Okay. <laughs> so they got to go home. No, not yet. Oh, it's goodness worse. gracious. It's it worse. The head of the hospital says that they don't agree to be recorded. The dad says, I don't agree to be held hostage in a hospital. The three leave the room again. And then just the pediatrician comes in and says, mom can leave, but baby cannot. And here's where it gets interesting, as if it wasn't interesting already. Yeah. <laughs> they decline. Like they decline and pack up the baby to leave. The baby has an ankle monitor on, so if they walk out the door, everything will shut down. So my clients don't have another choice. So what the dad does, he calls 911. Yep, you read that right. They, they answer, quote, what is your emergency? And he replies, we are being held hostage in the hospital. Wow. The dispatcher says, please repeat that. He says, my wife and baby are being held hostage at the hospital. The dispatcher is very confused. Yes. <laughs> yes, what they want. The dad says to leave the hospital. So they send police. Three police officers show up. They speak to the parents and the doctors and head of the hospital. The officers tell my clients, well, I can't make you stay here and neither can the staff. But if yeah. anything happens to the baby, know that you will be properly tried for it. So mm -hmm. the smart parents replied, well, is, that is no different than if we were not at the hospital, correct? <laughs> I mean, if something happens to our baby at home, you're going well, to... Well, usually you're not tried for something Well, you're going to be investigated. You're going to be investigated for it. Okay. Yeah. And the officer says, yeah, I guess you're right. So they take off the monitor and we all walk out of the hospital. Anyway, this is sort of a funny story. As soon as it was asked what to do about being in the hospital and not allowed out after testing positive for COVID, what can she do? Well, in the future, calling 911 is an option. <laughs> well, they probably would make her stay because... COVID. COVID. <laughs> Nuts. Just thought I'd share Carmen. That That's a pretty funny letter, don't you think? I mean, it is funny, but at the same time, like what craziness. I mean, if we really take a step back and think about the insanity of that story, um, that you have to, you know, go through all of those changes just to go home with your baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
yeah. that's yours that you made that belongs no, you're, to you you're responsible for you're right you're absolutely right it's not a funny <laughs> story but i think carmen is a funny writer <laughs> yeah no it was funny yeah. but at the same time it's you know it's uh we live in a crazy world yeah. So, so Carmen, think of uh, maybe if you get ever change occupations, you can get into uh, uh, comedy writing because it was pretty fun. <laughs> okay. So here's something interesting. One of the books I'm reading for pleasure is a book I read like 30 or 40 years ago called The Mists of Avalon. Yeah. It's about the Arthur legend from the from the viewpoint of the women. And in the in the thing, um, Morgane gets pregnant by her brother Arthur, and she has a baby, and Morgaz. Her aunt, her mom's sister, is scheming as how she can take control of Arthur's firstborn. So she tells Morgane that if she gets skin to skin time, then the baby won't accept the wet nurse. Mm. Okay. Now, mm -hmm. she, in the book, she, they're saying she made it up. But it's interesting to see how medical gaslighting was going on in the fifth century. <laughs> 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 I just, you know, I can't, I can't, I can't get away from it. No matter what book I'm reading, there's like something about childbirth and then some wrong information. Yes. Well, right. it's everywhere. That's very true. Yeah. Speaking of wrong information. Okay. Um, California yesterday, which would have been August 30th, advances a bill punishing doctors for contradicting consensus on COVID-19. Yeah, I don't know if you saw this, you don't necessarily pay attention to the news. No. So it's it's not signed into law yet, but it's passed both houses of, in the state Senate and the state assembly or whatever it's called. So uh, it will be uh, signed into law as soon as there's some reconciliation that goes on. And what this bill does, by the way, the bill is defined as punishing doctors for contradicting consensus on yeah. COVID-19. So, you know, be, me being me is like, well, whose definition of consensus is it? Mm-hmm. So I, I went and I looked up the definition of consensus because that's what I do. Yes. <laughs> so you don't have to. Uh, okay. Consensus is not a majority vote. Every opinion counts, right? Yeah, right. Consensus accounts for dissent and addresses it, although it does not always accommodate it. Well, they're not addressing it, and they're not, and of course they're not accommodating it. Um, it's not a vote. Problem with voting is that it might prevent real discussion, as voters do not have to justify their position. Uh, apparently, either do administrators who come up with whatever consensus is. A consensus can be found for looking by looking for common ground and synthesizing the best solution that the group can achieve at that time. And consensus is not the same as unanimity. Every discussion should involve a good faith effort to hear and understand each other. Yes. Okay. So I don't think what uh, the California Assembly thinks is consensus is actually what it means. Um, and I have no idea who's deciding these things, and neither do they. Um, the California legislature has advanced a bill that would allow the state's medical regulators to punish doctors for spreading false information about COVID-19 pandemic. Okay. First of all, that's a violation of the First Amendment. You, you, can, you can say things that are false. But and we're second, not really in a pandemic anymore, so why are we doing this now? <laughs> Well, it's because it's never about that. It, it's a, it's again. They, once you, once a totalitarian gets control of something, yeah. they, they never let go. But right. what's interesting is that they, they want to punish doctors for spreading false information. Well, pretty much, isn't everything they told us a year ago being turned out? I mean, we knew it then, but they're now admitting finally, like the CDC is admitting that it was false. Mm -hmm. So if you take their law by the the literal aspect of it, maybe they'll start punishing themselves. What do you think? You think that'll happen? No. <laughs> no. Unfortunately. God, you're so smart. All right. <laughs> uh, the Assembly Bill 2098 would give the Medical Board of California the agency that licenses physicians and you guys, by the way, midwives. It says midwives? No. I mean, oh. no, but I'm just saying it's the same agency. Yeah, I'm giving yeah. you I'm giving you kudos because you get you get to be regulated by the same crazy people that we're regulated. by. Yeah, it's good times. Um, it gives them the ability to suspend or revoke a doctor's state license for spreading COVID-19 disinformation or misinformation, which is vaguely defined as information that goes against contemporary scientific consensus. OK. Contemporary. Of, this, this is this is chilling, by the way, this is this, 
This is one another reason, number 872, to be looking elsewhere um, to practice medicine. Mm-hmm. And if you, by the way, if this passes, it's not going to be confined to just COVID information. Right. They're gonna, they're, whatever the whatever the ideology of the day is, is what they're going to be promoting. And so when, I mean, already now, I would wonder if people go to the physician and if their physician is still promoting the vaccine or tells them that breach delivery is dangerous and needs to be by and just tells them things that are patently untrue, that it's safe in pregnancy and it's effective. Um, why would you trust that doctor for anything they tell you? So the spread of misinformation, by the way, how we define that, and disinformation about COVID-19 vaccines has weakened public confidence. Mm-hmm. No shit. Yeah. It has. But who's the one spreading misinformation? If you pay attention, if you read, the, if you watch the high wire and you read on Substack, you know who's spreading misinformation. It's the same people that are passing these laws. Major news outlets have reported that some of the most dangerous propagators of inaccurate information regarding the COVID-19 vaccine are licensed health professionals. I agree 100%. <laughs> They're the ones that work for the California Department of Public Health, the CDC, and corporate medicine. Right. Misinformation is defined in the bill as false information that is contradicted by contemporary scientific consensus. Disinformation is defined as misinformation that a doctor provides a patient with malicious intent or an intent to mislead. So when a doctor tells a woman that her hips are too small. Yeah. Or that her baby's too big or that her placenta is old. That's disinformation. Let's take away those doctor's licenses. Now, you and I are both not for that, okay? But let's, let's, let's be honest about who exactly has been doing that sort of thing. It's like so much else happening these days that those with the power are accusing others with doing the exact malice they themselves are doing. The Federation of State Medical Boards, a nonprofit organization, argued licensed doctors or physicians have an ethical and professional responsibility to share information factually, scientifically grounded and consensus driven for the betterment of public health. That's true. It should be factual, but it's not. And it's not the people talking about the the faults of the COVID-19 vaccine that are the ones that are spreading this disinformation. Um, By the way, again, being me, the um, Federation of State Medical Board says that it's a nonprofit organization. So I I looked I went to look them up, okay, and I tried to find they have uh, one two, three four five people on their board of directors, all all physicians by the way, and a whole bunch of directors at large and staff fellows and and I don't know if like, they get paid I could not find anywhere online where they get paid, but I do know that a team leader for the Federation of State Medical Boards makes one hundred fifty seven thousand dollars a year, that a Director of Finance, the average salary at the Federation of State Medical Boards is 125K a year. And a controller's average salary is 101K a year. Now, okay, a nonprofit organization paying these kinds of salaries to people, you have to wonder, okay, so where do they get their money? Where do most nonprofits get their money? Do you know? Um, From public donations. Public donations. Yeah. All right. How many people are donating money to the Federation of State Medical Boards? I would not know the answer to that. Well, I can tell you that not too many. I can tell you where they get their money from is confiscating it from doctors who have to be board certified in order to keep their privileges at hospitals or get on insurance panels or whatever else. So when you say you're nonprofit, but you're confiscating, you're confiscating money and paying nice high salaries. And I, again, I don't know if the board of directors gets paid, but generally board of directors people for these kinds of things get paid fairly well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, by the way, if any one of these doctors wants to contact me from the Federation of State Medical Boards and let me know that I'm wrong, I'll be happy to report that on the next episode of the Birthing Instincts podcast. Not and, one doctor has said no, that they would come on yet. But, uh, but when they say that it's a nonprofit organization, that's such misleading crap. They squeeze the lifeblood out, um, out of the people in order to uh, be able to practice your trade. I mean, I'm unique because I don't have to, because I don't belong to any organizations and I don't have hospital privileges and I don't take insurance 
But if I wanted to, then I would have to pay the, the American Board of OBGYN, which is a branch of the Federation of State Medical Boards, um, fees every year in order to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. And which they pay fairly high salaries to people to regulate me with no evidence that anything that they do increases the quality of the, uh, the physicians who are under their certification. There's no data for that. Okay. Okay. So that was pretty impressive. Because <laughs> I did all that and it was, it was driving me crazy. Okay. We got it out. Yep. That's in the round file. Now here's one more thing that's going to be an interesting thing for you because you might, you, you'll hear about this California, which of course, you know, has a strong feelings about the Dobbs decision uh, of throwing uh, out Roe v. Wade and putting it back to the states. So California wants to make abortion more, more um, uh, accessible. Yeah, accessible. Thank you. That's the word mm-hmm. I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. So in that vein, California Senate passes a bill allowing trained nurses to perform abortions without doctors present. Okay. Mm-hmm. Good or bad thing? Um, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. Uh, I'm all I'm saying. I'm I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing either. All I'm saying is, if suddenly they think that because there's a need that nurse practitioners should be allowed to do abortions when that's never been allowed before, it's always considered a surgical procedure that is in the purveyance of physicians and not nurse practitioners. But they think now there's a need, so let's do it. So. If that's the case, and if that's the standard we're setting, then how come we can, then let's pass a bill that says uh, nurse midwives can do vacuums. Yeah, where does the, where, who decides and where is the line? Well, we know there's a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. It's, what they de- it's what they deem necessary. They don't, they don't have an interest in birthing in Sacramento. It's not, a, it's not high on their registry. So, but. Not if it conflicts with the consensus. <laughs> Good point. We're going to talk about consensus when we talk about, oh, we forgot to talk about our topic today, which is going to be um, uh, Rogam and RH, uh, anti-D, RH disease. So we'll talk about that in a second. But I just wanted to finish up with this and say, listen, this is a good precedent. Maybe even whether you're pro-abortion or not pro-abortion, the idea that the government just decided that we need more people to perform this procedure, well, we need more midwives to be able to do certain things too. So let's start to lobby Sacramento and use this as a piece of uh, leverage. Why not? Okay, do it. Okay. All right, so you know what? Let's take a break for a second and have a little music. (laughs) And talk about our sponsor, Element, L-M-N-T. You have your salty as fuck and so do I. (laughs) So why don't you give us a little uh, insight? Well, you know, I I told you guys that I did my first bike ride with my new bike today. And when I came home, I was so excited. Honestly, I was so excited to to fill up my water bottle. And today I had, um, they sent me um, some more flavors to to try, which is great. And so today I'm having watermelon salt, which is actually really delicious. So it's a um, electrolyte drink. Um, that has none of the BS like us, and it doesn't have sugar, which is great. Cause a lot of times when you have these like, um, fitness drinks, a lot of times they're chock full of sugar. So it's much better for us to have the potassium and the sodium and, um, the magnesium that our body needs to be balanced without putting in a lot of the processed stuff. Um, so it's good for, it's good for breastfeeding moms. It's good for pregnant moms. It's good for us as birth workers. Um, and we always talk about how, you know, also we like love it because in those little packets, it's pretty environmental. So you just put a pocket in your reusable water bottle and, um, and you, you don't have to have a lot of the extra plastic. Yeah. It comes in, comes in grapefruit, watermelon, citrus, orange, raspberry, raw, unflavored mango, chili, lemon, habanero, and chocolate salt. Uh, so go to drink element. That's drink Use the code word birthing instincts and you'll get a free sample pack with any order. Um, so please support them because they support us. Thanks, Element. Thanks, Element. So I have another letter and then we'll get to our, our topic. Okay. This is from, uh, well, it's not really a letter. It's a story, actually. This is another from a North story. Carolina it's midwife. Story time. Yeah, it's, a, it's another story. I spoke to this person yesterday 
on the phone. And essentially, these letters, when we read them, we don't read them with the idea that they're praising us or they're trying to make us feel good, even though obviously when somebody tells us a story like this, we feel really good. But it's to show that the importance of, of, of continuing education, the importance of skills training, importance to understand and emphasize to uh, doctors with white coats that midwives have these really good skills. And that, you know, the fact that OBs don't complete any more training afterwards and don't get the training, uh, to me, is a, tra is a tragedy. Oh, yeah, that's mixing words. Travesty and a tragedy. Um, I like tragedy. <laughs> okay. I think it's a new word. Yeah, let me write it. Let me write it down real quick. Tragedy. <laughs> okay. I don't know. We'll have to figure it out. Probably been done before. All right. So this is from a midwife in North Carolina, and she says, "Thank you for the time taking the time to speak to me today. This is about a primate frank breach at 42 weeks in one day, planned home birth. She was getting biophysical profiles, and everything was fine. Her labor began at 6:30 in the evening and went really quickly." By 9.58, she ruptured her membranes, so about three and a half hours later, and she had a vag exam, and she was five centimeters, zero station, 80% in the birth pool. Within 30 minutes, she began feeling rectal pressure, and um, within another 30 minutes, we, we, they could start seeing some of the baby's bottom during the peak of her pushing, mm -hmm. which was not coached. It was spontaneous pushing. Mm-hmm. So the mom was actively pushing. The baby's fetal heart rate was about 145 baseline and pretty much steady throughout the entire labor. About 11.15 p.m., they heard the first time they heard a dip to 100 of the fetal heart rate, which recovered relatively quickly, but went up a little bit higher to the 150s. And they began to listen continuously now because the baby was starting to show its little rump and they had taken my breach course, a reteach breach. Um, she had two more contractions with the fetal heart rate staying at baseline. And the baby came almost to rumping, but then of course it, it was doing that primate thing where, you know, it rumps a little bit and then goes back up again. Yeah. Right. right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So at 11:20, she had a deep D cell to the nineties and then recovered to the one fifties. She asked mom and dad if they wanted to call EMS or, or if they wanted her to use her emergency skills to get the baby out if the D-cells continued. Mm -hmm. That's very appropriate. Yeah. Recognizing that. They stated that they wanted us to get the baby out. So three minutes later, there was a deep cell, deep D-cell to the 90s. Again, recovery to the high 150s, but immediately moved in. I, I turned her over from all fours to lithotomy position. I did, I did the Pinard maneuver, the Love Set maneuver, and the Brock maneuver, and the baby was born within two minutes. Mm -hmm. One myth, one midwife was drying, one getting the ambu bag, and one went to milk the cord. The cord was not attached to the placenta. It was mm. dangling from the baby. Just membranes and cord. From the start of the Pinard, it was 60 to 90 seconds. We aren't really sure. So then she says, Dr. Stu, you absolutely saved a baby's life. Mm. I know without a shadow of a doubt that I could not have gotten that baby out in an upright breech position. The baby was just barely where I could grab the hips. If I had not taken your class in Greenville, South Carolina this past month, I would have had to wait on EMS. Mm -hmm. The baby would have died or exsanguinated. Same thing, I guess, um, mm -hmm. because it had, a it had a velamentous cord insertion they didn't know about, right. and the cord had completely separated. I am beyond grateful that you make it your life's work to train people in these skills. I appreciate so much you taking the backlash I know you get from teaching breach and lithotomy position. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I also teach upright. I mean, I have two trainers and one trainer is, listed in, is sitting in the upright position and one trainer is in the lithotomy position because women don't always want to stay where you want to put them. And yeah, you and you should know. You should right. know both skills. Yeah, absolutely. I am glad my colleague and I came to your workshop together. She knew exactly what I was doing and how to help. And when the adrenaline was getting to me, she just said calmly, more down, less up. The very first detail I heard your voice say, quote, if the thought enters your head, just do it, unquote. Yeah. And I compare that to like when, when we're thinking about postpartum hemorrhage, when we think about if the thought of an IV enters your head, 
you should just, you should start it. You shouldn't like say, well, I'm going to wait and see if it, no, if it comes into your head. So the thought of the fact that this baby's having deep D cells and I know I can get this baby out, um, I should get this baby out, then just get this baby out. Yeah. I didn't feel panicked. I felt prepared. Did I do it perfectly? Absolutely not. I've already critiqued myself many times. Yeah. But it was close enough to get the baby out safely. Um, thank you isn't adequate, but it's all I have. Beautiful. That is amazing, Stu. I'm so glad you shared that. Yes. And then she said, she sent me an email follow-up that she said, I forgot to say when only that little bit of the breach was down, I remember you pausing the video, pointing at it and saying, an expert would look at the baby and know that they were okay, that at this point they could get the baby out. At the end of the class, you looked at all of us and you said, you are all experts now. Yeah. Uh -uh. you, you know more than 90% of the practitioners out there. Yeah. When I saw the breach get to rumping, I knew we could get the baby because you believed in us. Your words matter. All words matter. So thank you for empowering us to be experts. From a midwife in North Carolina. Love it. Yay. Reteach breach. And breach without borders. Yes. Okay. So what's our topic today? Rogam and RH factor. Yeah. And so, you know what? There's a lot, a lot of information on that. I got all of it pretty much, except I went online and read some other stuff from Sarah Wickham's book, and I'll put it in the show notes. What's uh, the title? It's called Anti-D Explain. Great. Anti-D is the RH factor that's the most important one. So that's what matters. And Sarah Wickham is a scientist, a doctor? A... Let's see. Sarah Wickham is author, speaker, researcher who has been writing and lecturing about anti-D. She's written like several books. And okay. the foreword in this book is from Michelle O'Don. Great. Right. I'm trying to see what other books she's written. Vitamin K in the newborn, group B strep explained, introducing, inducing labor, what's right for me, birthing your placenta. So she's written lots of these like manual books right. and some, and somebody gave me this and um, because she did it and because they sent me, they had a question, I, I was forced to read it. So like always, you know, this is what I do when I'm sitting around at night sometimes. And so I read this whole book and I highlighted, I took out the highlighter and then I went back through and tried to make it a little bit shorter. So let's see what, what these things are. And please, Bliss, interject your wisdom and your, and your questions as we go along, okay? Okay. So Sarah writes, women who, who I had cared for as an independent midwife, so she was a midwife, mm -hmm. and, and who knew that they had rhesus-negative blood, had asked me during pregnancy whether anti-D or Rogam was truly necessary for them. I had to tell them that I didn't know. Good. I didn't know. I didn't know the answer to this question. I and realized you something. What? You appreciate when people admit that they don't know something. You know I do, right? Yeah. Good. This is a this is a confident and wise person. Yeah. As opposed to saying, "Of course it is." Everybody does it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she goes on and says, "I realized something else. Anti D was the only pregnancy and birth related intervention I could think of, which I hadn't previously heard anyone in question challenge or decline." Yeah, very commonly. Right. So the fact that no one had really questioned this intervention was a surprising realization. Why was this intervention so accepted? Anti-D has saved lives in the thousands of babies since its discovery of introduction, and no one argues that fact. In fact, it was chosen by Time Magazine as one of the top 10 medical achievements of the 1960s. And that's true. I mean, it has done miracles when it's given to a woman who has an RH negative, uh, positive baby, after the baby's born uh, to prevent sensitization, it drops the rate from like seven or 8% down to less than uh, right around 1%. So it, it, it has saved all those women who would have been sensitized and had future problems. It saved those babies. There's no question about that. Yet it's precisely because a few women were questioning their need for anti-D that it seemed important to research this area to be able to answer their questions. I would argue that the uncomfortable questions may be among the most important questions to ask. You just, yes. you just kind of said that same sort of thing. Yeah. I'm looking here. See, I marked everything that I'm going to read. Okay. Some people ask, could the baby that a woman is currently pregnant with, which may or may not be her first, be affected if there is some kind of accident or intervention and their mother encounters their blood, say, at 14 to 16 weeks? So we're talking about early 
potential bleeds between mom and let's start there. Uh-huh. The answer to this is that it is indeed possible to become sensitized in pregnancy, but it's not likely. And this would not affect the baby almost it would it would not likely affect the baby that she's currently carrying. And that's because um IgG antibodies can cross the placenta, but IgM antibodies cannot. And the first response to any sort of antigen um, that your body recognizes as foreign is to produce IgM. And that's usually for about two or three months before IgG starts to come into place. Now that's variable and stuff like that. But so a woman who is mounting a primary immune response to the rhesus blood cells is not going to produce the kind of antibody that can cross her placenta. Okay, what about in a subchorionic hemorrhage? That kind of bleeding, is that something that we that we should be considering as a potential? Yeah, well, I will, I will get to that, but it's but it's okay. actually, no, that's a really good question because that's, I want your mind thinks in the way that our listeners' minds are thinking. Uh -huh. um, it really depends. It's hard to know because no one actually is looking anymore because it works so well for postpartum desensitive, preventing sensitization that it's now pretty much given for everything without a lot of data. Yes. But it actually depends on how much blood is actually transmitted. And if you have a miscarriage or a subchorionic hemorrhage at eight or nine weeks, the likelihood that there's significant enough blood that's going to cross over into the maternal blood to stimulate our antibody response is very, very small. And you can do a test called a Kleihauer-Betke, but you're not going to find, probably not even going to be positive in, in that early on. So the question is, no one really knows. Uh -huh. But the standard now is to air the consensus. <laughs> There's that word again. Is to air on just giving just giving rogam as assuming that rogam has no downside to be giving, and the risk of um, the sensitization is high for women who are desiring to to build a family. Well, not necessarily in the early first trimester. Hmm. Right. We'll get we'll get to we'll get to the more specific on that in a second. Okay. Um, it takes time to make the template. So unless a woman was sensitized before the pregnancy began, the baby that she is currently carrying is not at risk if it's the very first time. Yeah. Okay. So that's mm -hmm. that, that that seems relatively reasonable. Before anti-D was available, rhesus disease affected one percent of all newborn populations of European descent, and was responsible for the death of one baby in every twenty-two hundred births. It's much, much smaller now. So again, this is the discovery was good. What happens sometimes when they discover something that's good and excuse the cynicism, but is profitable, then the use becomes more widespread without necessarily any good evidence to support its use in other situations. And that's what happens right. a lot here. Right. Um, when and why is anti-D offered? The first recommendation, at least in most high-income countries, is that anti-D or ROGAM should be offered within 72 hours of any potentially sensitizing event, or what's called a PSE, potentially sensitizing event, <laughs> okay? It's important to know that the 72-hour timeframe is not an absolute cutoff. We do know that anti-D can be effective if given up to 10 days after a potentially sensitizing event, but sooner is better. From my education, I learned that the 72-hour timeframe list was because they tested it on prisoners. And they only had them for 72 hours uh, yeah. before they had to send them back to the, to the jail. So that's where that comes from. Again, I would stand to be corrected. I like when our listeners will send me stuff like the time we were wrong about midwives in North Carolina, as we just found out, because we just had a story about a midwife in North Carolina. Yeah. One of the key paradoxes is that anti-D is the only medical treatment that the author knows about with, with which the following three things can be said. It is given to a person the mother, who doesn't benefit from it. When it is given in pregnancy, it is given to the possible detriment of another person who won't physically benefit from it. And by that means, if you're giving it to all pregnant women, say at 28 weeks, yeah, some of those babies are RH, are RH um, negative. Yes. They're not going to benefit from it. And there might be some detriment to giving this product. You didn't talk about the 28 week, why we do the 28 week one yet. Nope, I'm going to get there. I'm okay. just following, you know what? I'm following Sarah Wickham's sort of outline. Okay. And it is given for the possible benefit of a person who does not yet exist or who may never exist. The next pregnancy. The next pregnancy. 
There's no other medication that you would ever do that. There's nothing that, that you do that for. So it is kind of an interesting thing that she says. Let's see what's next. Some midwives have speculated that by waiting and allowing the placenta to, oh, this is, a, so I'm skipping around because I, the book is thick and I'm only highlighting certain areas that I thought would be interesting to our listeners. So some midwives have speculated that by waiting and allowing the placenta to detach naturally, we may decrease the chance of fetal maternal transfusion. But no studies have been done to test this. Makes sense to me. But it makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, know, you let the placenta separate naturally you're less likely to tear the placenta and the, and the if the placenta separates intact then the fetal blood never comes out of the fetal part of the placenta as is meant it's meant to do correct less trauma and then there's that Clyhower Becky test I talked about it's a test that you can run and theoretically you're supposed to run that because it tells you to ensure that you're giving the correct amount of rogam depending on the size of the bleed um, but most people don't do that anymore. They just give a sh- shot of full Rogam. That's what they do. A blood test, Stu? This, this test yeah, it's is a blood test blood? on the mom. They, uh-huh. can find, they can find fetal red cells in it. Okay. Okay. So interesting. Here's a question. How is anti-D made? Because this is something that everybody wants to know. The blood product? Anti-D is a medicine made from pooled blood. Mm-hmm. Donations from a number of people are mixed together to make anti-D. One reason for the scarcity is cost, but another is because a donor, which has to be sensitized in order to donate blood from which anti-D can be made. Clearly, anybody who might become pregnant in the future should not be deliberately sensitized. The reward for donating uh, blood in the United Kingdom is a half an hour or so in the company of the friendly donation center staff, followed by a cup of tea and a couple of biscuits. (laughs) (laughs) In the U.S., people are sometimes paid to donate blood. And that can mean that the demographic profile of blood donors is different. With the U.S. program attracting people who may have a lifestyle factor, which are more likely to be associated with blood-borne diseases. Yeah, but they screen them. Well, they can, but there are certain things that they can't necessarily screen for. Mm -hmm. And also, because anti-D is a medicine made from blood, and a very small number of people may have allergic reaction to it. There are four key side effects to getting a shot of Rogam. Uh-huh. One is an injection site reaction. Mm-hmm. The second type of side effect is that between one in 10 and one in three women will have systemic reaction, such as fever, chills, skin rash. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Mm-mm. Third type is an immediate reaction, which is anaphylaxis. Never seen that. Yeah. And the fourth category of possible side effects listed is the manufacturer, listed by the manufacturer, is that of bloodborne infections. All right. Now, certain things can be screened for, obviously, hepatitis C, HIV. Are they screening for um, spike protein? I don't know. Sure, they're not. Right. Is that, a, is that a pathogen or is it innocuous anymore? We don't know. But these are things that need to be thought about because now blood is going to be getting from donors who have had the mRNA vaccine and some that haven't, and they're going to mix it together and they're not going to keep it separate. You're not going to have any way of knowing where it came from. Yeah. And then it says any product made from human blood carries a risk of transmitting infectious agents, which include viruses and the real weird variant of Jacob Kreutzfeldt disease, which is a degenerative brain disease. Again, these are not meant to scare people. Uh, I've never seen this sort of thing. And I, I, I just think that she's just being very honest that, that you can't, if somebody says it's perfectly safe, that's not true. It's not true informed consent either. Right. That's right. Right. She does say something which is very, very Birthing Instincts podcast like. She says, I often tell people to look beyond relative risk, which can make something sound more dangerous than it really is. My advice is also to look for the absolute risk of something. Yes. That's that's us all the way. Okay. Um, just for people to know, uh, thimerosal, which is uh, mercury containing, is no longer used in any preparations of anti-D in America. Ina Mae Gaskin in 1989, an American midwife, was one of the first to raise concerns about the effects of anti-D. She noticed similarities between the issues in this area and the work of Durandi, who studied the effects of the administration of gamma globulin to children between the ages of four and 10. The researchers found that their immune systems were compromised for up to five months after receiving gamma globulin. She says, 
I have met and heard from a significant number of women who have felt that they experienced a longer-term reaction after having Rogam, which rendered them more susceptible to catching other viruses and infections. Like it lowered their immunity? Correct. Mm -hmm. Again, these are just observations, but these are this is what we're doing here is trying to give people informed consent. So in the future, if they want to have a friend or cousin or somebody who's got questions about Rogam, they can refer them to this podcast, which will, I think, be podcast 276 if, it, if I got it right. Making decisions about anti-D. Recommendations are made on a population level. That is, policymakers decide what will be offered across the board to everyone in particular situation. But we are all individuals. Um, and that, so that's an interesting thing, again, that gets back to uh, how it's algorithmic. One size fits all. The original clinical trials, it's in, this is interesting, okay, to me anyway. Nine major clinical trials were conducted between 1967 and 1971. And that was to test the effectiveness of anti-D. All these trials showed that anti-D was effective. And this was only for, the trials were for postpartum injection of preventing sensitization at birth. As a result of this research finding, anti-D was manufactured in bulk, and the initial recommendation was made that this should be administered to all rhesus-negative women who have given birth to a rhesus-positive baby. This policy has remained largely unchanged to the present day, and with only research looking at what the dose should be, and not whether or not there's ways to figure out which women are going to be sensitized and which women aren't going to be sensitized. Because remember, 92-plus percent of women who are Rh-negative, who don't get Rogam, who give delivery, who deliver a RH positive baby will not be sensitized. Only seven to eight percent will be. So what's with these 92 percent versus this eight percent? That would be interesting to find out. But you know what? Nobody's looking. Right. Right. Um, later trials were stopped because the results of earlier studies showed that anti-D worked. <laughs> Now it is considered unethical to randomize women into intervention and control groups and thus deprive those in the control groups of anti-D. So this is like a perfect storm. We've talked about this before in um, with the COVID testing, with what Pfizer did. Mm -hmm. After two months, they, they said, oh, this is working so great. It's not fair to have a control group anymore. And they got rid of their control group, which was perfect for them. I'll leave it at that. Um, Cochrane reviews on anti-D administration after childbirth for preventing rhesus immunization shows that after six months, 10 women in the anti-D group were sensitized compared to 204 women in the control group, which is 7.2%. That's that mm -hmm. 7 to 8% that I was talking about. We know that giving anti-D is considerably more effective than doing nothing. If we want answers to other questions, though, the lack of information and clarity does pose a bit of a problem. So here are the unanswered questions. If I decline anti-D, what's the chance that a future baby will have a problem? And what's the chance that they will have a serious or life-threatening problem? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they just said that maybe 8%, 7.2% will have a problem. But how the mom will get sensitized. So is that 100% that the next baby would be affected? Or? That's, what they're, that's what they're asking. Yeah. And no, and and I don't, I don't think there's data out there that, because these are the unanswered questions. So. Okay. She does a really good job, uh, Sarah of Wickham, of, of putting these things in a very readable fashion so that you can pick the chapters you want as you're looking for. And then the other answer, unanswered question, is the risk of sensitization, RH disease, really high if I don't have anti-D? Or is it quite low, but one of those situations where anti-D is given to everyone just in case? Mm -hmm. and, you can't, and there's no answer to those anymore. Uh, data showed that between 85% and 93% of rhesus-negative women who had been given birth to a rhesus-positive baby did not become sensitized. We've already talked about that. What is really unhelpful is that anti-D trials weren't able to tell us anything about who is the likely to be infected without the medication or intervention. So we don't know. It's more of a commentary on the implications of our approach to healthcare, which focuses on populations and not on individuals. It's impossible to know from the research findings that we have whether sensitization might be predictable because no one's looking. Potentially sensitizing events. This gets back, I think, to your original question. United Kingdom in 1976 recommended that a dose of anti-D should be offered to rhesus-negative women following any miscarriage or abortion after 12 weeks of pregnancy. And this recommendation, recommendation remains in place in the UK today. 
In the case of spontaneous complete miscarriage confirmed by scan where the uterus is not instrumented or where mild painless vaginal bleeding occurs before 12 weeks, prophylactic anti-D immunoglobulin or ROGAM is not necessary because the risk of fetal maternal hemorrhage and hence exposure to the D antigen is negligible. However, guess what happens generally with people who have miscarriages at eight weeks? What does their doctor tell them? A, a DNC? No, well, besides that, but I mean, say they have a spontaneous miscarriage. Uh-huh. I was taught that they should still get Rogan. Yes. But that's not evidence-based. And I, I again, we don't like the term evidence-based medicine, but we can use the term evidence-based, right? Yes. This recommendation is not based on robust evidence. Cochrane reviewers, again, there's insufficient data available to evaluate the practice of anti-D administration in an unsensitized Rh-negative mom after spontaneous miscarriage. This is because, as in so many areas, it is felt that it's better to err on the side of caution. Right. As anti-D is effective after birth, it seemed reasonable to think that it is effective after miscarriage or abortion. We just, again, don't have any data on how many women would be sensitized without it. Based on expert opinion, however, the, ne- the definition of an expert in this situation is rather narrow. So when they talk about expert opinion, okay, the key decisions in this area have been made by working groups of obstetricians and hematologists with a special interest in rhesus disease without reference to anyone else who might have an interest in the area. They didn't interview midwives. They didn't interview uh, RH negative moms. They didn't do any, they just talked to doctors and hematologists, that sort of thing. It is now offered as routine preventative measures during pregnancy, and this is perhaps the most controversial aspect of the anti-D program, okay? So in other words, now it's offered to women who are 28 weeks pregnant who are RH negative, okay? Can you explain why, the reasoning, the thought process behind the 28 week? It's the thought process is because it works after you deliver a baby, we might as well give it at 28 weeks because a small amount of people will be sensitized during that period of time. So we might as well give this medicine to all of them since it works so well afterwards. There's no how data. Would they get, how would they get sensitized in the middle of their pregnancy without an event? Oh, they could have a subtle hidden bleed, supposedly. And this is what we're taught. But what I'm, what I'm, what I'm saying is that there's no data. That's never even made sense to me, honestly. But, well, first of all, it doesn't make sense because they don't, sometimes they don't even ask what the husband's blood type is. Yeah. Well, how do you know he's the husband? I mean, how do you know he's the father? Like, yeah, I know he's the father. Okay. But they don't ask. Mm -hmm. And then now with NIPT testing, again, I'm not sure this is universal and I'm not sure that it's something that people can afford or insurance companies are going to pay for. But one of the companies is able to determine the baby's blood type with with relative accuracy um, through the NIPT testing. So if you're an RH negative mom, you can request that. And your husband's RH positive, you can request that testing. If he's RH negative, you don't have to. But if he's RH positive, you can request that testing because if your husband is RH positive, that doesn't mean that your baby will necessarily be RH positive. If, you're, if your husband is heterozygous and has one gene for RH positivity and one gene for RH negativity, there's 50% chance your baby's going to be RH negative. So why get Rogam with the potential for side effects, costs, other things? If you don't need it, but no one's looking. You get back to the whole thing of why no one's looking. You know the answer to that. So did you just say that with the NIPT, they can find out? The baby's blood type. Yes. Yeah. One company. I can't remember which one, but somebody, okay. our listeners will know. And if somebody wants to message me, I'll mention it on the future podcast. I don't know if it's Materna or if it's uh, Panorama. I don't know which one it is. Okay. Um, we don't have robust evidence to support the idea of offering anti-D after a potentially sensitizing event in pregnancy, but it's not difficult to understand the reasoning around why this is offered. This is the question you just asked, is Mm -hmm. why not, okay? The introduction of routine antenatal anti-D was just an idea. It was thinking. So it's what we call consensus opinion. Yeah. All right. The issue was discussed in a series of meetings that involved doctors, pharmaceutical companies, representatives and scientists few midwives were involved not a single this is where this is not a single rhesus negative woman or lay representative was invited these conversations led to the most high income countries adopting the recommendation that rhesus negative women should re- routinely be offered prophylactic anti d at, at 28 weeks i guess 
Moving along, these studies are rather old now and they may not reflect the current situation. Now that routine antenatal anti-D is offered to all rhesus-negative women, it is hard to gather more data which might help us look at the question of whether and how often silent sensitization occurs. There's no more research going on because everybody gets Rogam, so now you can't do the research. The Cochrane Reviewer summarizes the situation as follows. The quantity of available evidence to answer such a question as antenatal anti-D routinely of a policy was disappointingly low, and there was a moderate to high risk of bias in, in the included studies. Right. A guy named McBain in 2015 said, existing studies do not provide conclusive evidence that the use of anti-D during pregnancy benefits the mother or the baby. But as in the case with a number of other interventions with maternity care, a lack of robust evidence has not proven to be a barrier to the widespread implementation of routine antenatal anti-D. <laughs> True. Right. There was a consensus conference in 1998, I think, and that said, the majority of participants were hematologists and obstetricians, as we've talked about before. A number of people and groups were not represented. Childbirth organizations and childbearing women were not invited. There was no clinical midwifery and no other birth workers or activists were involved either. Midwifery regulators tried to raise concerns that there was no sound evidence to suggest antenatal administration was beneficial. They also presented some papers on that. They also highlighted the fact that up to 40% of the 100,000 or so women who would receive antenatal anti-D each year in the United Kingdom would be carrying rhesus-negative babies and therefore would have received this unnecessarily. And then they add, the conference was co-sponsored by the blood products industry. <laughs> I'm sorry. If people can't see, Bliss has just got this shit-eating smirk on her face. You know, it, br it brought up a question for me that I don't know that you discussed. So you talked about the four um, four potential side effects with the mom, but you're talking about all of the potential of these moms who have an RH negative baby would be exposed, but we don't have any potential downsides to the baby that you've mentioned. Well, funny you should mention that. Okay. The safety of antenatal anti-D. Anti-D anti given to women can cross the placenta. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there is no controlled data in human pregnancy to know what that does. We know very little about the potential effects of anti-D on unborn babies. Um, they're just, they're just uh, they're vague statements all over the place because there's no data. But theoretically, if you give Rogam to an RH negative mom who has an RH positive baby, then that, those antibodies, some of them are going to cross the placenta. And why wouldn't they then attach to the baby's red cells? and potentially cause some hemolysis going on in the baby. This is a theory, this is something that I've thought about all my life. I guess the dose isn't big enough to cause enough damage. Yeah. But it's causing some damage. As we talk about, every time you have an intervention, there are downstream consequences. Yeah, but we don't know what it but would we're be. not looking at them because all we're looking at is the stage one endpoint. Mm-hmm. Did it prevent the disease? Which is, you know, admittedly, an important stage one endpoint. This is an interesting statement. They said uh, there's, a, there's an author that cites a number of references for their statement about the safety of antenatal rogam, although some of them simply point to each other and they, and they quote each other's papers. Mm -hmm. Sounds familiar. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Okay, so I'm going to try to wrap this up. There's a real irony here because one reason for our lack of safety data is that the Western medical ideology deems it more acceptable to expose a baby to a medicine in the course of routine obstetrical practice than carry out research to assess its safety. So people can get the book. I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. There's just so much in this book and we didn't get the chance. I mean, it would probably take another 15 minutes to go through it and we're really over our time. Today. Yeah. So yeah. maybe at some point I'll put a little marker here and then we'll, uh, we have a little time to kill another podcast. We'll do um, the rest of it. Okay. But the, in summary, what I would say, the, the, the summation of the things are as follows. Okay. Do you remember the line in Jurassic Park? No. <laughs> where the mathematician, I think played by Jeff Gold, uh, Goldblum, says mm -hmm. to the scientists who, who regenerated uh, the dinosaurs, he says, you were so busy trying to find out if you could that you didn't stop to think about whether you should. And we should start to think about these things a lot in what we do, all right? But the, the, things, that mo the things to remember is, is anti-D is a medicine made from blood. A rhesus-negative woman who gives birth to a rhesus-positive baby has about a one-in-eight chance of becoming sensitized. 
Yeah. If she does not get Rogam. Right. So it really works for that. And it's really important. But that means seven out of eight women don't. Unfortunately, we don't know how to pick those women. So if we believe in the model of informed consent, then people have to decide for themselves the risks and benefits. Uh, obviously, the medical consensus is that the benefit of Rogam outweighs any potential risks. All right. Thanks for uh, thanks for reading that, Stu. Yeah, it's not the most exciting reading to sit in bed at night and read that stuff, but I no, but I, but, but it's interesting. It get, it gets you thinking, and that's good. That's what our podcast does: it gets you thinking. So that's good. Yeah, it gets you aggravated, gets you pissed. Sometimes well, it gets you really happy yeah. and overwhelmingly blessed feelings. Like uh, like the lady who did the breach maneuvers. Yeah. Well, I've got an interview that's waiting for me, so I got to go. You it's always been have lovely. to go. And, I, yeah. and, I, and all I do is I have to do all the, the uh, downloading and uploading and stuff. So I can't go anywhere. <laughs> I love you. Thanks for doing that. Yeah. Next week when we talk, I'll be on the road. Okay. Great. All right. In the beast. So thanks, everybody. And um, drink element. And have a great week. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram.